it's so much nicer being in the back row and cursing and tutting as someone else ruins your carefully prepared words. And tonight I have no one to blame if it all goes wrong apart from myself. So it's like a strange case of role reversal. Um, and being up here now, it reminds me actually, there's this story about Albert Einstein during the 20s when um, Einstein was going basically all over Europe making the same speech over and over again about the theory of relativity. And on one of these occasions, he was doing a speech at the Royal Society, and his driver said to him on the way there, oh, for God's sake, Albert, are you doing that same bloody lecture again today? I swear I've heard you do it so many times now, I could deliver it myself word for word. And Einstein said, OK, I've got an idea. Why don't I dress like the driver and I'll stand at the back of the room while you go up and you deliver my lecture. And the driver was like, all right, we'll give it a go. And Einstein went to the back of the hall and he watched with wonder as his driver delivered this incredibly complicated speech and he got it absolutely word perfect. But then the Valerie equivalent said, thank you very much indeed, Professor. Now, does anyone have any questions? At which point, someone in the room asked this absolute blinder of a question, but the driver, he didn't miss a beat. He just said, very good question. And of course, it sounds very complicated, but the answer to it is so simple, even my driver can tell you. <laughs> I love speech writing. I think that speech writing is the best job in the world, uh, but it's also one of the worst jobs in the world, probably, because it's a job of contrast. On the one hand, you get to walk down the corridors of power. Um, the Houses of Parliament still send a shiver down my spine when I walk down there. Uh, but equally, you don't have any power yourself. And whilst you can see your words written in the newspapers, God forbid that you actually claim credit for them and admit that they're yours. I love doing it, though, and it has been 20 years now. And I remember when my fascination and love of speech writing started. It was 1999, just under 20 years ago. And I was Alan Johnson's private secretary, so the Bernard Woolley job in Yes Minister. And I was accompanying him on a trip to Harrogate, where he was due to be making a speech to the TUC. And this was his first speech as a minister. It was an important audience. There were going to be journalists there. So I'd commissioned for him a speech to be written by the civil servants within the department. And I'd gone through it beforehand and thought, this looks very clever. It sounds very intelligent. There's lots of long words in there. He's going to love it. I'm sitting in the train with Alan sitting opposite. And he was going through the draft. And he's a very nice guy, Alan. He doesn't swear often, but he was, he was swearing a bit when he was going through this draft, and he was like, it was complete thick of it territory. I won't quote directly, but various adjectives before the word diabolical appeared. And in the end, he just ripped up this speech and said, absolute rubbish, I'm just going to start it again. And he got a pad out, and literally, he just wrote the whole speech from scratch on his own. And I'm then thinking, oh God, new private secretary, new minister, this is it, I'm going to lose my job, he's going to lose his job, it's going to be a nightmare. Um, 
Can I clear the speech with the civil servants? No, you're all right, he said. And so I'm at the back of the room in speechwriter position, and I can still to this day remember how he started this speech. He said, Stalin, Mussolini, Hitler. Three of the most wicked dictators in the history of humanity. And they each did exactly the same thing on their march to power. They undermined the trade union movement. Why did they do that? Because they knew that trade unions were an essential part of a good democracy. And it was like, boom, you know? That was the whole thesis of his speech set out in about 30 words. And then he developed on that speech, and it wasn't all long words or long arguments. Instead, it was a selection of stories from his own experiences running a union. Uh, there were jokes in there. I remember he described having um, a hotline phone on his desk with a special number that was only given to government ministers so they could clearly get through to him. And he told this story about how during the whole time of the Conservative administration, that phone only rung once. And then it was someone thinking they'd called the local Chinese restaurant and they were trying to order a, a crispy duck, as he put it. Um, there, there were no statistics in there apart from one, which was that the Conservative Party held power in Great Britain for longer in the 20th century than the communists did in Russia. And there was a joke, which was at my expense. He said, my private secretary's at the back of the room. He's so posh that when I told him that we were going to Harrogate, he thought I was talking about the famous bun-throwing bun public school scandal of the 1970s. And, and that, that was it. And the critical thing about this speech was that it, it moved me, and it moved me in two ways. Firstly, it moved the way that I thought about trade unions. I grew up in the 1980s. Some of my earliest memories are of like the rubbish piling up outside our home because the bin men were on strike. I remember the images of the miners' strike with the miners fighting policemen. Um, I did not have a particular positive image of trade unions, and during his speech, he had managed to change my perspective, so I saw trade unions in a different light. So it changed the way I thought. That's a measure of a good speech, right? But secondly, it also changed the way I felt. I found it absolutely extraordinary to see a guy who came from Alan's background, growing up an orphan in deprived circumstances, um, here in London, basically growing up in, in squalor, and yet using the power of his words to gain this amazing power. And I was just absolutely enthralled, enchanted, and I've been obsessed with speechwriting ever since. But you see, the thing is, is the reason that this speech works was because Alan wrote it himself. It was probably the best speech that he ever delivered in his whole career, because from then on, I had a hand in almost all of them. And the thing was, was that it was authentic. You see, there's a myth about speechwriting, and it's a myth that's perpetuated in programmes like Yes Minister and The West Wing and The Thick of It and all that, of the speechwriter being like a puppeteer, 
controlling these idiot politicians. If only it were that easy. There were a couple of speechwriters in the room tonight who will um, confirm when I say that the basic rule of speechwriting is when it goes well, it's because the speaker's a genius, and when it goes badly, it's because the speechwriters are bloody idiots. <laughs> you know, so you're not like a puppeteer. The critical thing you've got to do as a speechwriter is write the speech that they would have written themselves if only they had the damn time. Because this is the thing that our leaders, be they business people or politicians, they, 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 they can either spend their time running the thing they're supposed to be running, you know, be it a big company or be it the government, or they can spend their day flicking through books of quotations and joke books. You know, this is something which is properly outsourced. But for us as speechwriters, this creates a dilemma because it means that we have to write the speech as if we were them. So speechwriting is this really weird job where it's like an act of psychological transference. We need to write the speech not that we would like to give on this topic, not the speech that we would like them to give, but rather write the speech that they would have written themselves if only they had the damn time, you know, because otherwise it's not going to have that magic of being authentic. And so this was really weird for me because then my first full-time speechwriting gig was writing speeches for Patricia Hewitt when she was um, a 53-year-old cabinet minister and Secretary of State for Trade and Industry, and I was a 26-year-old beer-swilling, chain-smoking rapscallion. And it meant that every day I would have to kind of go into the office and metaphorically don my high heels and, <laughs> you know, put, apply my lipstick gently, and then come up with all these stories about how I'd worked at the civil rights organisation Liberty during the 70s, where I was there alongside my good friend Hattie, and how I'd worked with Neil in the 80s. And this was the critical thing. I was writing speeches that she would deliver, not the ones that I wanted her to deliver. And if you look at any of the great speechwriters through history, this is what they've done. They've put themselves in the soul of the person they're writing for. So there's a wonderful line about Ted Sorensen, who was JFK's um, speechwriter during the 60s. And they used to say in Washington at the time, when, when Jack is wounded, Ted bleeds which is just beautiful, and it's that level of symbiosis that you have. Matthew Paris, who many of you, I'm sure, will read in The Times uh, from time to time, uh, he used to write speeches for John Major in the 90s, and he once said that he, he knew John Major liked to kind of drone on, and so he just used to write these passages that could be easily droned, and to his delight, the Prime Minister read them out beautifully, and that's the thing, we need to write for the person that we're writing for. So if we're writing for someone who, who's mind-numbingly boring, it's our duty to write a speech that is mind-numbingly boring. If we write a Barack Obama speech for someone who has the charisma of a dead slug, or, or Philip Hammond, shall I say, you, you, you know, then they're going to look like an idiot. They'll lose that magical authenticity. It was quite easy for me to write speeches for um, Alan Johnson. I wrote speeches for him on off for the best part of 10 years. So after a while, I could kind of hear his voice in, in my head. And we had similar values and similar experiences, similar tastes. Um, and so it wasn't too hard. But what do you do if you're um, a speechwriter who doesn't have that level 
of access or intimacy? What do you do if you've just got five minutes to have a quick chat with the person that you're writing for? Well, I'm going to suggest in my speech there are three questions that you should ask. Everything in speech writing always comes in threes, and my own speech is going to be no exception. So the first speech is, what's your favourite joke? <laughs> it makes everyone smile, even just asking the question. And even if they don't have any, then you can tell them some yourself, and it'll just relax them, kind of get them in the mood. And of course, humour is such an important way to make connections with audiences. And in my experience, everyone has a level of humour to them, and the only trick as a speechwriter is finding out what their level of humour is. So you have um, like some speakers who are unintentionally funny. And so there's, there, there's one trade unionist I remember seeing give a speech at TUC once where he was talking about a wrangle that the union was in with their employers. And he meant to say that they were in a catch-22 situation. But instead of saying they were in a catch-22 situation, he kept saying they were in a catch-69. <laughs> and he kept saying, we're in a catch-69, a catch-69 like this. And everyone, this was down in Brighton, where everyone was probably up to all sorts of sordid goings-on after hours anyway. And, um, yeah. <laughs> the, the other, uh, the other, the other uh, one was the, the, the French politician who was given a speech at the European Parliament. And he was given a very kind of, you know, puffed up, pompous speech. And he kept talking about la sagacité normande, you know, the, the, the wisdom of the French. And he said this, la sagacité normande. And every time he said it, the, the British delegation uh, started laughing. And so this wound him up. And so he'd say it again, la sagacité normande, like that. And British delegation would laugh again. Um, and it turned out afterwards that the interpreter had been saying, Norman Wisdom, Norman Wisdom, Norman Wisdom. So that's the unintentionally funny. Um, if you move up a level like that, you get people who, who can, can learn a joke. You know, they, they can read a joke and learn a joke. And most politicians, in my experience, have two or three jokes that they, they have up their sleeves that they just kind of keep on rotation and will keep using the same ones over and over again. I have to confess the Einstein joke that... Um, I started with tonight, that is my go-to gag. I love it. <laughs> um, but every, everyone has a different one. And I always think um, Churchill's good source, actually. There's something, and you can Google them easily enough, there's something like 20 ready-to-wear, ready go-to Churchill gags, ra ra ranging from the one about Lady Astor, which you've probably heard, and I won't bore you with that, um, through to some really quite smutty ones, which are obviously quite good as well, particularly for the after-dinner ones. And I think my favourite one of these is there's a story about um, Churchill going to the loo just before Prime Minister's questions in 1951 in the House of Commons. And he went to the urinal and saw Clem Attlee, the then leader of the Labour Party, was already standing there. And Attlee, uh, Churchill shuffled in, shuffled in, kind of angled himself round to one side and Attlee looked over and said, what's the matter, Churchill? Something to hide? To which the great man replied, not at all, Mr. Attlee. It's just that I know your first instinct 
whenever you see anything huge, is to nationalise it. <laughs> so all sorts like that. I think the highest level, you know, you know when you're really working with a good speaker, when they've, they've cracked the art of the self-deprecatory um, joke. Obviously, the most famous example of this is, is the late comedian Bob Monkhouse with, with his... They laughed when I said I wanted to be a comedian. Ha! They're not laughing anymore, are they? Um, or the businessman I saw making a speech the, the other day where he described being at breakfast with his wife that morning and he turned to her and said, did you ever, in your wildest dreams, imagine that, that one day I would be running one of the biggest companies on the planet? To which she replied, darling, you never featured in any of my wildest dreams. <laughs> Or the politician I saw given a speech the other day where he said, the other day I dreamt I was given a speech in the House of Lords. And then I woke up and discovered I actually was given a speech in the House of Lords. Um, Self-deprecatory gags have this wonderful ability just to break any tension and address any hostility to the extent that even uh, Donald Trump managed to win over the liberal media in Washington just for a fleeting moment a couple of weeks ago when he gave a speech to the gridiron dinner in Washington. He just told one self-deprecatory gag after another. So he joked about his thinning hair, about Melania leaving him, about Jared Kushner having trouble getting through security. All issues where he was sensitive and where the media had challenged him, and it was that combination that made it so funny. And in classic Trump style, he closed the whole thing off by, by saying, nobody does self-deprecatory humour better than I do. Nobody, it's not even close. So that, that's question one. Question one, uh, favourite gag. Uh, question two, where did you grow up? Again, I just find everyone wants to talk about this. This is something that makes people relax and, and happy. And as a speechwriter, it gives you real insights, I think, into when, where people are coming from. And particularly looking at what your speaker was doing between the magical age of 16 and 19. Because, of course, this is a time of exquisite exploration, you know, first travel, first home, first love, and so it tends to get them in a good frame of mind, and often it's during that period of, in people's lives, I find, where their worldview is shaped. So to go back to Churchill, between the age of 16 and 19, he was already deeply immersed in the art of rhetoric, and in fact he, read, he wrote the most incredible essay called The Scaffolding of Rhetoric when he was just 19 years old, and this was probably the finest single piece of writing on the art of rhetoric until my own book came out in 2010. Um, likewise, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, if you look at where she was in her life between the age of 16 and 19, well, it was the middle of World War II, and she was above the shop. And these are two things that I think utterly shaped her outlook, both of the world running the economy, but also foreign affairs through the whole of her time as Premier. When I looked at Alan Johnson's life between the age of 
1619. Well, he'd been sacked from a job stacking shelves in Tesco and was trying to make his name in a band doing Beatles cover songs. And so this was quite interesting as a speechwriter, and it gave me something that I could then play with in a number of speeches. So I remember there was one really big speech that he did at the Lord Mayor's um, banquet at the Mansion House. And we knew that he wanted to speak about science and globalisation, which, if you've written speeches on that topic for several years, are mind-numbing issues to write about. But we, we, we just thought, oh, we could have some fun with this. And we did a speech called Sergeant Pepper Economics. And the premise of the speech was basically if the Beatles had carried on recording albums like Please Please Me over and over again, then they would have failed. But it, as it was every single album, they innovated and they took an influence from somewhere else around the world, be it Indian sitars or Californian vocal harmonies, whatever it was, and making the case that uh, British business could learn from their example. The other one that we did was when we were at the Department for Education. We were talking about school councils and creating a new kind of relationship between uh, teachers and pupils, and we, we went with a very John Lennon-ish power to the pupils. Um, and then when we were talking about the, the, the Doha development trade round, we went for the long and winding round. <laughs> and these were all interesting angles to go for on speeches that I knew he'd be passionate about as he was delivering them because they were things that he actually cared about. If I'd have presented him a, the latest report from McKinsey on globalisation, he'd have gone up there, as McKinsey's latest study showed, and he'd have delivered it with no energy whatsoever. With the Beatles stuff, he was speaking with passion because it was authentic. He was showing a bit of the real him, the true him, which makes us all feel more comfortable. Now, whether or not you think that those ideas for uh, speech angles are good or not is the, irrelevant from a speech writing point of view. The thing is, is you always judge the success of your speech by whether or not the speaker is happy doing it. That's the measure of its success. And these were lines that I knew he would respond to, that I knew he would deliver. And I think my judgment on that is borne out by the fact that he's since written um, three volumes of his memoirs. He's, the fourth is coming out in September. And every single one has as, it, as its title a Beatles song. So we went from uh, This Boy to Please Mr. Postman to The Long and Winding Road, and his next one in September is In My Life. So there we go, it's the Beatles. Um, so when I'm working with a, a client, I go into their office, and I'm a bit like Sherlock Holmes, you know, like looking round, trying to find clues about what their passion is, looking at what the photos are on their desk, looking at what books they've got flicked open, any sign of what it is that gets their interest going. And this can be quite, um, quite enlightening, can create interesting themes for speeches. So there was one guy I was writing a speech for, a Brazilian businessman, who was launching a marketing strategy. And I went down to his office, and I noticed that he had a signed Pele shirt on the wall behind him where he was sitting. And I said, um, I said, oh, into football. And he was like, great, Pele. Absolutely the man. And he said, my mum got me that last Christmas. 
I absolutely love it, you know. And then he was, we were talking around the other things in the office, and I was like, that's it. <laughs> you know, we've got Pele. And so as it was, when he launched um, his speech, he opened up, he opened up saying, last Christmas, my mother got me the best present that any Brazilian could ever hope to receive. And that's a sentence where it's really important you get every word in the right order, or it means something completely different. <laughs> And he said, I'll never forget watching Pele as a child growing up in Rio and seeing him score goals like this. And we then played a little video of Pele scoring this amazing goal. And then he said, now you see what's going on there. Pele's got the opposing team running at him. His teammates are trying to grab his attention to pass the ball and the crowd's chanting his name. But never once does he take his eye off the ball. And this ladies and gentlemen, is our problem. The last few years we've taken our eye off the ball. The ball is the consumer. I'm here to get our eye back on the ball, and that's why we're launching this marketing strategy. And that was it, and he then went into the marketing strategy, which conveniently enough had 11 points to it, so we could then um, illustrate it with 11 football shirts up on, on the screen. And then we ended with a, a quote from Pelé, something like, success doesn't come by accident, but through hard work, determination, and perseverance, or something like that. So again, he was speaking authentically. He was speaking to his passion. The third question that I ask them is how do you see things, whatever their issue is that they're talking about? How do you see it? And this is the question that I hope will unlock whatever their metaphorical view of the world is. Metaphors are something that are personal to all of us, and it's communication that comes up from our own subconscious and communicates with other people on a subconscious Level. And so trying to decode these is one of the most enlightening things, really, to get you into someone else's head. I spent many years uh, working with the NHS in, in various different forms, like writing speeches for Alan Johnson when he was health secretary, then doing some stuff for some of the managers at the NHS, and have also done work with some of the doctors' representative um, trade bodies or unions. Um, and what, what has surprised me is how everyone who works in the NHS has a completely different perspective on what the NHS is, metaphorically. Metaphors are always the code for a metaphor is X equals Y. You say something is something which it is not, you know. And so to many politicians, they'll describe the NHS as a person. So they'll talk about the heart of the NHS and its values and its DNA, its outlook. They'll talk about how it's standing tall, or they might talk about how it's been brought to its knees. So they have a vision of the NHS as a person, which is great because that's a good metaphor for expressing emotion. So as a politician, they want to do that, gets that across. Um, and critically, of course, they think of the NHS as being their baby. And so it would be a person to them. But the managers in the NHS, the people that run the NHS, they, can't, they listen to the politicians and they can't stand it. They're like, you haven't got a clue. You haven't got a clue about what, how the NHS really works. They want to understand how it works. They want to feel like they're in control of it, like they can control it. So the managers in the NHS will talk about the NHS as if it's a car. And so everything in the NHS, they'll talk about driving change, 
accelerating reform. You know, they'll issue toolkits and engagement toolkits, whatever that is. Is it a, a mouth? You know, um, they'll get the components in place, and this is the kind of language that they will use. They, they issued all doctors um, a time back with what was called clinical dashboards. And the doctors, of course, listen to the managers speaking, and they're, they're like, you haven't got a clue. You haven't got a clue, you silly managers, honestly. You've got no idea what it's like on the front line. The front line. <laughs> so doctors will see what they do as being a war. They'll talk about fighting disease, beating cancer. They might give you antibiotics if you have an infection and say, oh, this will kill it. You know, I have uh, some personal experience of this. My eldest daughter is um, a type 1 diabetic, Charlotte, and uh, she was diagnosed when she was four years old, and she was having to inject herself for the first time, and this is very scary when you're four years old. And the doctors were there and were trying to explain what it was, and all of the language is about shot of insulin. Here's your jab. We need to use a lancet. And they, they gave to her a magazine, which I still have at home, which is called uh, What's Up With Ella, as all of these <laughs> healthcare magazines are, What's Up With Whoever. What's Up With Ella, which was a cartoon specifically designed by the American, American Medical Association to explain to children what it is that type 1 diabetes is. And it shows that when you eat food, um, your veins fill up with these nasty green monsters that are sugar molecules. And what you need to do is very quickly inject your superhero who's going to go around with a gun and zap down all of these nasty sugar molecules. Now, I think probably as a metaphor for diabetes, that's not bad. But if you're trying to explain it to someone who's just been diagnosed, it's holy. So it just goes like that. And of course, no, no patient who comes into the health service is going to want to think of themselves like that, which then means the doctors are speaking at cross-purposes with their patients. There's a wonderful woman called Professor Eleanor Semino um, at the University of Lancaster who's been doing some incredible work, like looking at the metaphors of cancer over the last few years and showing how a lot of that language is very aggressive military talk about fighting cancer, beating cancer, which of course then says to people that if they don't come through, they're a loser, they weren't strong enough, you know, and that's obviously a negative frame to think about your cancer. And what she's um, concluded from this is, is actually that it affects your mortality if you perceive your cancer as a war. So it basically makes you less likely to live as long, which is extraordinary, but obviously if you're perceiving the situation you're in, as being a battle, then you're going to have increased levels of cortisol, stress, and all of that. So with metaphor, this is how you can really get into people's heads. And you find, like, for instance, here in British politics, you can almost decode people's political affiliation from the kind of metaphors that you use, that people on the left will, will habitually reach for war metaphors. You know, so everything is a fight, you know, for the Labour Party. On the right, politicians on the right will speak far more in terms of nature metaphors and growth, personification, the heart of our communities, and all of that 
sort of language at a very general level, but it, there's quite a significant difference between the two. So Tory politicians are something like, I think, four times as likely to use nature and personification metaphors as politicians on the left, and conversely, I think it's two and a half times that way round. So it, it gives some clue to political affiliation. And when um, I looked at this, the results on this study, I was fascinated, and, then it, and this was from analysis of their speeches, and then I thought, oh my goodness, but this is something that is actually there in all of their logos as well, isn't it? It's that deeply embedded in their outlook and their perspective of the world, that of course the Tory party has the, um, the tree as their logo. The Labour party moved to the rose when Peter Mandelson was explicitly trying to echo Tory party language, but it's still the red flag of revolution, which is the end song at every Labour Party conference. Meanwhile, the Lib Dems, who speak in journey metaphors, have the image of the, the dove, which we don't see so much after it spent five years going over the country shitting on everyone. Um, is that okay to make mild political points? Or is it <laughs> Whoops, too late. <laughs> but you see how the different metaphors give you some insight into where they're coming from. And likewise, you see the same in the United States as well where traditionally, traditionally, American presidents have always used a very biblical kind of metaphorical canvas. And so a lot of darkness and light metaphors and climbing to the peak of mountains and the summit or being down in the dark valleys. You see that that language, Obama, both of them, <laughs> you know, Clinton, both of them. Whereas now, of course, we do have someone very, very different in the White House, who doesn't really much sound like any president that we've heard before. And he does have a very, very different met metaphorical outlook. So I dare say, if I just very quickly run through some of the things that Trump is most famous for saying, you'll see how he does speak in a very kind of caveman view of the world, whether he's speaking about African countries as shitholes, allegedly, or he's talking about women as bitches or as pigs, or he's talking about fighting and savagery. You know, it's a very <sighs> caveman, primitive, dog-eat-dog -dog view of the world. And that is the authentic Donald Trump, which kind of takes us round to this is, is what does resonate. Donald Trump did win the presidential election, kind of, or at least he is the guy who's sitting in the Oval Office this day, which I think is really a warning for all of us in Britain, when I think for a whole variety of reasons you get many politicians in, in Britain who simply can't tell the truth, and they can't for all sorts of reasons, most particularly the notion of collective responsibility, which means that when the cabinet sign up to a particular policy, they've all got to go out and sell that policy, whether they agree with it or not, which means that almost any politician who goes out is going to have to be a little bit insincere from time to time. And this is why I think most people are disengaging from politics, because politicians aren't speaking truth, and we know it. As audiences and as the electorates, our instinctive brains are so tuned in to when someone's being true to themselves and when they're not, which is why everyone was going out to see Trump 
at his rallies, and it's why he was able to build a movement. It's also, dare I say it, why Jeremy Corbyn was able to do the same here, because he genuinely didn't think he was going to win, I don't think. And so he wasn't constrained like any of the other candidates who were actually thinking, oh, I've agreed that policy position with them and so-and-so and weighing up all of these stakeholders. And so you ended up with this position where you had, you know, uh, people like Andy Burnham and Yvette Cooper who could scarcely keep you know, six people under a bus shelter entertained for, for 10 minutes. And then you had Jeremy Corbyn, who was literally getting 3,000 people stuffed into a, a room, you know, when they'd only planned for, for, for 200. And this is, is why I think people are turning away, and it's why people are looking more and more. At, you look at the speeches that are going viral, and I mean really viral, on, on YouTube, and I'm talking like a couple of million within a few months, and I'm thinking here of people like, I don't know if any of you were following the Alfie Evans case, the poor little baby boy in Alderhay Hospital up in Liverpool, but when his father was coming out and speaking, this was a guy who was speaking his truth, you know? He was speaking his truth, and whether you agreed with the position he was taking or not, like with Trump, you couldn't help but feel him, and you couldn't help but connect with him. Or people like um, Ismail Lygrove, who was a guy who um, gave the most incredible um, interview. He really tore down a, a journalist from Sky News outside Grenfell Tower a couple of days after the, the fire, and he was just like, it's you, the media, you do this, you do that, you facilitate this, and it was incredible. Instantly going viral on the web. Or people who are speaking hate and I've been seeing some extraordinary stuff. The most, um, the, most, um, the most popular vlogger in the world, as I understand it now, is a guy called PewDiePie, who's a Swedish vlogger who makes something like $15 million a year from appearances and from audiences on YouTube. And you watch this guy ranting and I mean, it really is just something else to behold. And this is a guy who is preaching anti-Semitism and all sorts, but he claims it's just a joke, you know? And his views are getting literally millions and millions. And this is the thing that I think... I, I, I'm longing for more and more politicians to speak truth. The reason that Alan Johnson seems... seems to many of you, like a nice guy, is very, very simple. He is a nice guy. You know, for me as a speechwriter, there was never any um, spit and polish <laughs> or varnish on him. I was basically an overpaid dictation machine. And I think this is what speechwriters should be, overpaid dictation machines. And if they're, they're not, there's not a problem with you. There's probably a pro problem with... The principle, and I think you should say to them, say to your principal, what their audiences will say to them, which, in the words of John Lennon, was, just give me some truth. That's it. That's my truth. <laughs> I don't know what yours is, but I'll be happy to take your questions, but if they're too difficult, I will refer them to my driver, who's at the back of the room. Thank you very much.